You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. And welcome to Belaboured episode 97. We're speaking today with Janae Bonsu of BYP 100 about their agenda to build black futures. First, a little news. Well, it seems like just a few weeks ago, the left was beside itself with grief, anticipating that public sector unions would be gutted once and for all by a precedent-changing Supreme Court case, Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. Now, with the death of Supreme Court's arch-conservative Antonin Scalia, labor activists are rather awkwardly letting out a huge sigh of ecstatic relief. Scalia's absence now means the court loses the anticipated anti-union majority 5-4 vote, and that would mean that the lower court precedent upholding the union side would stand with a 4-4 tie. Alternatively, the decision could be held over until a later session and revisited with a full wrench, presumably with a new appointee under a new administration. Either way, unions have bit the bullet for now. The case would have turned on an arcane legal mechanism, as we've reported before here on Belabored, whereby public sector unions can collect fees from non-union workers at unionized workplaces. This is fundamental to the closed shop model that underlines most union financing in states that allow it uh, in in many uh, of the core unionized workplaces across the country. Um, This has been eroded in the private sector by right to work, and the Friedrich's decision against the union uh, probably would have made this a national right-to-work policy throughout the public sector. To discuss the ramifications of Scalia's untimely yet fortunately timed death, I talked to Richard Collenberg of the Century Foundation, who has written on the role of public sector unions, and he has specifically explained unions in the public sector as democratic social institutions and a critical voice for organized labor that could be grievously harmed by an unfavorable Supreme Court case. So what does he say? I mean, the Friedrichs case was enormously important. Uh, so the, the death of Justice Scalia um, makes a, a critical difference in the in the future of public sector unions. I mean, most people were expecting a five to four decision in favor of Rebecca Friedrich and against the California Teachers Association. And now with Justice Scalia's death, the likely decision will be four to four, and under the Supreme Court's rules, a, a tie affirms the lower court decision. And in this case, you know, the Ninth Circuit upheld the right of the California Teachers Association to charge fair share fees um, and declined you know, to find a constitutional right to free ride to be able to benefit from collective bargaining without having to pay for it. So it seems to me now you know, labor unions are have all the more reason to push for President Obama's eventual nominee, um, who could tip the balance in favor of labor unions on cases like this. And if the Senate fails to confirm that nominee, uh, the, the stakes for unions in the presidential election in 2016 becomes all the more uh, critical. This is one of those accidents of history that um, will have an enormous impact on the ability of public sector unions to 
really serve as vibrant uh, agents in our in our democracy. The unions essentially dodged a bullet in this case, given the personal tragedy for Justice Scalia and his, his family and friends. It turns out has a, a very positive impact for uh, public sector unions and, and unions more generally. Uh, under the Supreme Court's rules, a four-to-four decision means that no new precedent is created and that a lower court decision is affirmed. And in this case, the Ninth Circuit supported the right of the California Teachers Association to charge fair share fees. So uh, so in essence, the teachers' unions would, would win. Right. I mean, that's another sort of stroke of fortune, I suppose. I mean, what does this say more generally about um, the precariousness of the legal rights of public sector unions? There's no precedent for this, right? Um, so what, what, uh, what does that say going forward about the vulnerability to another legal attack that's waged on a similar premise? Well, I, I think the assumption is that President Obama would likely nominate uh, a justice who would take a more favorable view toward the ability of public sector unions to uh, collect fair share fees. And so the fight over getting that nominee confirmed is, is incredibly important for the, the survival of uh, a vibrant public sector labor union movement. You know, without these fair share fees, it's predicted that public sector unions would be starved of at least a third of their fees. So it, it would have a devastating impact on the ability of unions to represent their members, to go out and uh, recruit new members, and to play a, you know, a, a critical role in our democratic process as a, as a counterweight to corporate interests in the, in the political dialogue. And if if there is a Republican next president, then um, presumably Scalia's seat would not be the only one that's vacated in the coming presidential term, right? I mean, things could go right. a lot of different directions with a bunch of new appointments. Is that correct? I, absolutely. There are several very elderly justices, both progressives and conservatives. And so the next president is likely to be able to tip the balance on a whole host of issues on the Supreme Court. Chief among them, in my view, is the the survival of public sector unions. How predictable is it that a conservative justice would automatically gravitate towards the anti-union position on this? Because as we saw in the past, Scalia has been known to waver at least slightly on the question of, you know, free riders. So, I mean, is right. it possible that maybe a conservative justice would uh, actually, you know, side with the union in this? Well, I think it's possible, but but unlikely. Um, so in, in some ways, the older conservative Supreme Court justices had a greater appreciation uh, the, of the role that unions play in a democracy which is, I think, part of why there was at least a slim hope that Justice Scalia might support the ability of teachers' unions to collect their share of fees. During the Cold War, in particular, conservatives understood that labor unions were, were really important players in our democratic process, that, that they provide balance in the system, 
labor unions were strong supporters of free labor movements in uh, communist countries and uh, throughout the world. And so there was a conservative appreciation of organized labor. That's been dwindling with younger conservatives who have left of a uh, an appreciation of the history of the Cold War and the ways in which unions can, can promote democracy both abroad and, and here at home. And so my concern is that a conservative president would appoint a young conservative justice who you know, would likely be on the Supreme Court for many years and, um, and might not have that uh, full appreciation of the historic role that labor unions have played in promoting democracy. Yeah, it's interesting that the uh, generational shift among conservatives would actually mean they tack further right on labor issues. But uh, I yeah. guess that's the way it goes. Um, and I, I know Friedrichs was specifically pertaining to public sector unions. What do you think this might do to the broader debate around right to work in general uh, nationwide? Because, you know, while there are legal battles being waged um, on the one side in the judiciary, we see a lot of legislative action that is increasingly making it difficult for unions to uh, finance themselves. That's right. Well, right now, the battles over so-called right-to-work provisions are waged state-by-state. And conservatives have made a lot of inroads in a number of surprising places, like Michigan and Wisconsin. And yet, it was uh, an incremental battle. The Friedrichs case would have nationalized right-to-work for public sector unions across the board. You know, in one fell swoop, instituting a right-to-work regime on public sector unions in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. And that would have had a, a, a really devastating impact. The push for right to work will continue uh, among conservatives at, at that local, state and local level, but we uh, are now in less than danger of a catastrophic nationwide right to work rule being put in place by the Supreme Court. Would there be a chance maybe in the future for the issue of right to work coming to the Supreme Court in the private sector, um, you know, for uh, unions representing private sector workers, whether they have the right to close shop unions? Yeah. Well, conceivably, that could happen. The constitutional argument for imposing right to work in the public sector, I thought, was weak. It's, it's much, much weaker in the private sector because you know, the First Amendment applies to government and you know, to state governments in particular and the federal government. And so the role of government in providing rules about public sector employees uh, impinges on the First Amendment much more clearly than in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, but uh, as, as you noted yourself, uh, the, the First Amendment uh, thing is, is highly controversial, even in the public sector, so who knows? Oh, absolutely, and so it's a weak argument in the public sector, in my view, and extending it to the private sector would, would be very, very difficult. 
In 2014, President Obama issued an executive order, the Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces Executive Order, which required federal contractors who employ some 26 million workers to report their safety records to the federal government as a condition for continuing to receive contracts from the government. As we've discussed on the show before, the departments that are supposed to oversee worker safety, specifically the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, are so underfunded and understaffed that a 2012 report found it had OSHA had just enough inspectors to visit each workplace an average of once every 130 years. Of course, bosses don't like being inspected, and they like to having, having to voluntarily report their conditions about as much. A new report out this week from our friends at the Center for Media and Democracy looked at the pressure those contractors are putting on the administration to withdraw that rule. They're mostly doing that through two trade associations, the Professional Services Council, or PSC, and the HR Policy Association, HRPA. Each group represents more than 300 companies, and they are both heavily lobbying for their members to be able to continue to police themselves. Except they're kind of bad at policing themselves. The CMD tracks just a few violations by member companies like DuPont, where four workers died after a gas leak in 2014. A follow-up inspection in 2015 found the company still committing serious violations and paying out hundreds of thousands in fines. Or AECOM, I have no idea what that stands for, where a worker was killed in March of 2015 after being struck by a pylon. Um, this company and its subsidiaries have racked up quite a few serious violations. These are, of course, massive companies, many of them on the Fortune 500 list, among the largest federal contractors. As CMD notes, they shouldn't have a problem cleaning up their acts, but apparently fines of $100,000 or so are just the cost of doing business. It seems it might take actually yanking their contracts to make them value their workers' lives. Well, Congress finally managed to get one thing done this session, and it only came 80 years late. They're moving, finally, to get slave labor out of our free trade. Both the House and Senate have now approved a measure attached to a broader trade bill, which would bar the importation of products made with forced labor. Sounds pretty straightforward, but it's actually rooted in a very arcane section of customs and tariff law. While the detection of forced labor in the global supply chain is a notoriously difficult endeavor, uh, not least because trade laws make it easy for corporations to get away with exploiting forced labor and not disclosing it to consumers, the concept is to use research on products and industries known to use trafficked, bonded, prison-related, or otherwise coerced labor, including child labor, and to scrub it out uh, at the border or uh, through customs. This could apply to, for instance, global forced labor hotspots like uh, child labor in conflict mineral mines or seafood that's harvested using fish feed produced by traffic labor in Southeast Asia. Mostly, more than enforcement itself, it reflects the growing consciousness among consumers and even among corporations about human rights violations in their product supply chains. The ban empowers customs to block contraband items from entering ports, and investigation of suspected forced labor incidents abroad would go to homeland security investigations in about 46 countries, according to the Associated Press. This won't end forced labor in and of itself, uh, presumably because a lot of it takes place before those products are even created and get to our shores, but it does help uh, change the industry's incentive to abet and indeed profit from these illicit enterprises. 
it uh, provides a trade penalty, essentially, for exporting stuff made by slaves to a major Western market. This would complement the pretty bad publicity that some industries have gotten for using child labor in sweatshops, for instance, or another example is the AP's recent expose on slave labor on Thai fishing boats, uh, which uh, the AP says has resulted in more than 2,000 trapped fishermen being freed and more than a dozen alleged traffickers getting arrested and millions of dollars worth of seafood vessels seized. Of course, this stuff still does manage somehow, after every crackdown, to make its way into some Walmart supply chain. Um, That's a function of global trade. It's not really a function of actual uh, you know, enslavement practices per se. So this is uh, points to a broader systemic issue. And of course, places like Bangladesh have gotten plenty of bad press for running sweatshops using underage workers, but the fashion industry still seems perfectly happy to do a roaring trade there, and we seem perfectly happy to keep buying our designer brand clothing from stuff made by, you know, kids who really should be in school. The ban would uh, reverse a little-known but rather outrageous loophole in existing customs law, according to the AP. The U.S. Tariff Act of 1930 gave Customs and Border Protection the authority to seize shipments where forced labor is suspected and block further imports. So far, so good. But here's the thing. It has been used only 39 times in 85 years, in large part because of an exemption that said goods made by children, prisoners, or slaves can be allowed into the U.S. if consumer demand cannot be met without them. Yes, the imperative demand of the U.S. consumer trumps all, including human rights here. So an 80-year-old law is allowing American consumers to enjoy the fruits of slave labor abroad as long as we can claim that our demands for cheap clothes, for frozen shrimp cocktails, or for prized minerals just cannot be sated unless we promote this egregious medieval labor practice abroad. So now that that provision will finally be erased, it remains sadly less certain that this mentality among American consumers has really evolved accordingly. Last episode, I briefly discussed Black Youth Project 100's agenda to build Black futures. This election cycle has featured a lot of confusing or just plain wrong arguments about racial and economic justice and the perceived gulf between the two, but BYP 100 has put together a document that should make it clear to everyone that the fight for racial justice is part of the fight for economic justice and vice versa. To tell us about the agenda, how it came to be, and more, we have Janae Bonsu, who is the National Public Policy Chair for BYP 100. So explain what motivated you to develop this agenda and also talk about why it's coming out now and Mm -hmm. um, whether you think the timing of it will influence the current political discourse with the elections and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this agenda has actually been in the making for the past year. Uh, We started... January. When I say we, I mean BYP 100 is a collective of 18 to 35 year old young black activists and organizers. And um, in 2014, we had uh, put out the agenda to keep us safe, which is uh, focused squarely on police accountability and criminalization. But you know, we we recognize that you know from our own stories and uh, those other black folks, young and old, that, you know, make up our community, police violence is not the only 
uh, oppressive condition that we face in this country. Uh, and that, you know, if, if all police conduct was to end today, there would still be a disproportionate amount of black folks who are unemployed and underemployed and, you know, discriminated against in so many other ways that, you know, prevent us from living our full, you know, economic and political lives. And so we felt that it was imperative to really expand the narrative of what's become known as this Black Lives Matter movement beyond police violence and, and criminalization and really make the link that we can't have racial justice in this country without economic justice. And so uh, even though it's been in the making for a year, I'm actually kind of glad that uh, it's coming out now as opposed to, you know, six months ago or what have you, because I really do think that this document can be used to to agitate and uh, and push forward a narrative for uh, presidential candidates to really ponder and think about, you know, if, if they want to use Black Lives Matter in their rhetoric, then they should uh, put their actions where, where their rhetoric is and um, actually put forth policy recommendations that will actually change our lives in, in fundamental ways. So, um, you know, that I, I think that the agenda to build black futures is, is very timely. And, um, you know, hopefully this document will will lead this movement in a, in a more holistic direction in terms of what freedom looks like for, for black people in the country. Can you talk a little bit about how the drafting process happened? We started in January, and our previous public policy chair, his name is Terrence, uh, it kind of started out with a Facebook post in our private Facebook group like, hey, we need to start on an agenda that focuses on economic justice because, you know, we really have to nuance the narrative about what freedom looks like. So if anybody is interested in brainstorming this, like, let's get on the call soon. And generated a lot of interest uh, within our membership and folks talked on this call and really just exchanged ideas and envisioned, you know, what kind of economic goals can be set so that our our conditions would drastically change. Like, what what are the problems? What are the palatable problems? And what are some potential solutions to those problems that uh, that fall within what we call a, a black queer feminist lens, uh, which is how we approach all of our uh, organizing. And essentially, what that is is like radical inclusivity. That if we center those that are uh, at the margins of the margins. Uh, and, and we attain success for, for the most marginalized and disadvantaged, then everyone else in turn wins, essentially. So, uh, you know, in, in centering poorest of the poor, undocumented, incarcerated, LGBTQ in our, in our fight for racial economic justice, then everyone wins. And so from that call, it just became a series of, like, brainstorming and crowdsourcing sessions. And, uh, you know, later on in the process, particular people stepped up to draft sections, and myself included. And in the latter end of the process, I kind of took on most of the, the editing of the document and putting it together and getting it designed and all that good stuff. So it, it, was, it really was a collective process amongst our, our members of all young black folks. And also it includes stories of other people as well, both within and outside of our membership so that it could be reflective of, um, of not just people within this organization, but, you know, more so reflective of our entire base. So when I first read 
over the agenda, I was really struck by the sort of the breadth of the demands from things that are kind of central to the, the political conversation right now, like raising the minimum wage to things like baby bonds, a federal jobs guarantee, a, a guaranteed income that are really they're starting to get some attention, but are really still, you know, seen as as utopian demands. Can you talk mm-hmm. about the way that the sort of more immediately winnable things build towards these bigger, more utopian demands? I think that we definitely have to start somewhere, right? So everything in the agenda to build black futures is not novel, right? There's some of these things that have been in, in the discourse already, like you said, in terms of like raising the minimum wage and, you know, the right to unionize and things like that. But yeah, we recognize that um, that we're, we're not going to jump from where we are now to baby bonds or where we are now to um, guaranteed income. So baby steps or reforms that, that change power relations uh, is definitely what we're striving for. The closer you get to, to where you, you are, it doesn't, doesn't matter how slow or fast, it's, it's, as long as we're moving in the right direction. So uh, if, if we put forth all, all that we're striving from the go, then only up from here is how, how we see it. So, you know, even if we don't see baby bonds happen, or uh, reparations in whatever form happen uh, or universal guaranteed income happen, you know, in the next year or so, if, if we build campaigns around it now, if we start advocating around it now, if we start building towards that, uh, building power towards that now, then we will, you know, eventually win and see that come to fruition, uh, whether it's in, in the next year or the next five years or 10 years. So one of the things also that struck me about the organizing work that I've I've seen from BYP 100 is the way you've linked police violence and and money going into policing to the defunding of other social structures like public schools or infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that turns up again in this agenda. Um so can you talk to our listeners a little bit about the way money and profits and all of that fit into the sort of um, the policing and punishment system that we have now and the disinvestment from black communities in particular? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that is pretty central to our narrative. The fact that, you know, poverty and policing and profit and prisons, they're all very, very much so connected. You know, in, in the U S it's, it's no secret that, you know, we, we incarcerate people at a much higher rate than any anyone else in the world. And in prisons, if you if you look at profiles of, of most people that, that comprise prisons, most of them are poor. Like prisons have a, a, essentially become warehouses of the poor. Um, and the neighborhoods that are over-policed is, is what funnels people in, into prisons and in, in the prison industrial complex. And so, like, when you look at a city like Chicago, for example, that's where I'm based, in the past 10 years, uh, the city has spent $521 million on payouts and settlements and other costs for police misconduct cases. Um, and this is also the same city that had a mass close down of community-based mental health clinics. And so now many of those people are in Cook County Jail getting inadequate mental health care. This is the same city that had the biggest school closing in history, uh, over 50 schools uh, in the past couple of years. So many just really dire 
social service needs are being cut, but we have also a city that spends almost 40% of their budget on police. For $80 million per year goes towards the court costs in police hours for criminalizing marijuana. I mean, these are just like huge figures that are spent on policing and punishment that if they were instead reinvested in the things that will actually help people survive and live their lives, we'd feel a lot more better outcome. You know, perhaps if we if we did invest that money um, into mental health clinics or into uh, funding our schools better, there wouldn't be as, as much violence. There wouldn't be, um, you know, all of the things that people parade um, black folks about, like, you know, the black-on-black crime rhetoric and everything like that. Um, our, our, our communities are literally being disinvested in. There are cities uh, in, in, from Chicago to Detroit to New Orleans that have literal rows of, uh, of, of blocks with vacant homes and food deserts. Um, like, our people are really struggling, and you can't expect people to, um, to, to survive when there's a, such a blatant lack of, of, of equitable distribution, um, and at the same time, those people are being criminalized. So it's, it's really important that we don't focus on economic justice without making that very clear link to criminalization of black people in this country. And so, you know, some of some of the things that are put forth in this agenda that do seem kind of radical, like, you know, people were like, well, how would, you know, baby bonds be funded? How would, you know, all of these things that you're proposing be funded? You'd be surprised how many resources <laughs> are being harbored by the criminal justice system in America. Um, and so I, we really want to get um, an intentional conversation started about um, disinvesting in the prison industrial complex and investing in black futures. Speaking of going from the specific to the more general, I think some observers who see a title like uh, Agenda for Black Futures will open it up anticipating that each and every provision is going to explicitly reference things exclusively for black people and that everything is going to be about um, just getting things for uh, black folks. But your agenda in many respects uh, does not. It seems, um, you know, is actually very intentionally um, broad-based and universal in many respects, um, including the provisions, like you mentioned, which are demanding things for all workers. Why frame it with that language and how do you fuse this concept of rights and entitlements being universal and applying to everyone equally, but also very specifically underscoring that this is aimed at uplifting Black communities. Yeah, I mean, we we totally recognize that that Black folks are not the only group of people that, you know, face disadvantages and discrimination and are um, oppressed in this country. There's a lot of class-based issues um, that that we face. We recognize that, you know, many of the statistics that we see in the black community in terms of unemployment and underemployment um, and other dire statistics, you know, the Latino population is just like right there as well. So, I mean, just to to an earlier point that I made, if if you really focus on um, the most marginalized of groups, uh, you know, Everyone else wins because it, it, when you look at, uh, you know, history as a proxy for, you know, um, like sweeping policy 
change, like the, the, the New Deal, for example, or the GI Bill, um, on its face, they were really, you know, progressive policies that were aimed at um, uplifting people um, economically and, and, and making sure that people were able to live better lives. But when you look at the implementation of it, because it, it, it did not focus on black folks or other people of color at all, we got overlooked. It, the GI Bill excluded both black folks and LGBTQ folks. And so, you know, that's what it's really about in terms of censoring black folks, but that does not mean that this is uh, an exclusionary document. And so, um, you know, that's just kind of uh, my case for identity politics and, and policy change and advocacy. But absolutely, the agenda to build black futures is not solely about black people, um, but just like similar to to hashtag Black Lives Matter, you know, when when you have folks that, if this but all lives matter response, they just totally <laughs> miss the point. And that, like, yes, of course, all lives matter, but there's something very intentional about uh, asserting that black lives matter in, in, the, in the state that we are now because there's so many instances in which it, it's affirmed that they don't. Um, and so... So, yeah, I think that, you know, we just have to continue the work of coalition building and doing the political quilting of linking our struggles together, regardless of, of, of race or class, just keeping in mind that we have to be vigilant about centering the most marginalized. Yeah. And so somewhat related to all of that, your agenda has specific sections um, on the value of women's work, on the issues faced by trans people of, at work. Um, can you talk about the importance of, of feminism and bringing an intersectional lens to building this agenda? Why it's important to talk about women's work in an agenda to build Black futures? Absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned before, many of the, of the demands and recommendations in this agenda is not new. I mean, you go back 50 years ago to... Uh, when MLK was around uh, and, you know, the the civil rights movement of the 60s, you know, they were also in the streets uh, marching for, for, for better jobs and affordable housing and universal health care and all of these things. Uh, but what was what was missing from from that narrative was uh, was the value of women and trans people and lesbian, gay, bisexual and queer people were definitely left out of the discourse of the, the civil rights movement. And so, you know, especially in, in our contemporary moment that we're in right now, so much of our leadership in this movement is, uh, is comprised of women and queer folks. And it's, it's time that we stop being invisibilized and challenge the sexism, homophobia, and transphobia that lives with, within the movement historically and presently. And, uh, you know, again, recognizing that all of our liberation is tied together. So we can't, we can't just be for, for some black lives. We have to be for all black lives. And so, yeah, again, in, or, in organizing through a black queer feminist lens, it's recognizing that we are all comprised of multiple identities. And like myself, being black, being a woman, being queer, uh, amongst other identities that, you know, it's compounding oppression, and that's important to center in this work. In thinking about uh, the section in the, in the agenda that talks about valuing the worth of, of women's work, specifically, you know, we live in a country where, where black mothers have been uh, demonized and criminalized in so many ways, 
and, you know, black families have been put down by being headed by so many single mothers. But in reality, single female-headed households is not <laughs> the, the demise of the black community is that these mothers aren't being supported, both their paid and unpaid work. And so just really just challenging the narratives that have been uh, dominated in this country for, for so long. That, you know, it's really a matter of uh, seeing the humanity in everyone and recognizing that we all deserve to live our full lives. Yeah, I was really struck by the sort of linking in the agenda between unpaid work that's mostly done by women like childcare and Mm -hmm. the investment in quality public schools, which is, you know, the paid work that is still most public school teachers are women, many of them women of color. And, you know, I'm We've our first our very first guest on this podcast was Karen Lewis from the Chicago Teachers Union. So, you know, we mm. we talk about this issue a lot. But anyway, I just would love to hear you talk a little bit more about those linkages between paid and unpaid care work and why those are devalued, especially when done by black women. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned that, that most teachers are women. Also, most child care workers are women, too. Right. And many child care workers can't afford child care for their own children. That is just unacceptable. As a feminist, you know, I, I see child care as not just, you know, a need for people, for working parents, for working mothers, or those trying to find work. It's a right. I think people have the right to be able to go to work knowing that their children have a safe place to be and that their minds and lives are being nurtured instead of the anecdote that was included in the agenda about Shanisha Taylor, you know, trying to go out and, and find a job. But you know, having no child care for her children, having to, to leave her children in the car while she tries to get an interview to better their lives. So it, it's just, it's really um, common sense <laughs> to me to invest in, in mechanisms that would allow women to better support their families and make ways for child care to be more affordable or frankly free <laughs> or universal. It's super important that we lift uh, what's been a huge burden on on women, and particularly Black women, for generations. Yeah, um, one of the great ironies I reported on when I was um, reporting on child care workers is how many um, daycare workers were being forced to stay home with their kids because their jobs in child care didn't pay them enough to afford right. child care for their own children, so they actually had to like take themselves out of the child care workforce to become stay-at-home parents. And I'm like, yep, free market at work. That's um, the irony of it. Yeah. So crazy. Yeah. So your agenda really foregrounds this framework of reparations as a measure of economic justice. And for people who are not familiar with the debate or who um, haven't really wrapped their head around that concept and how it relates to these core issues that you try to tackle, seems like one of the common criticisms of um, the, in the reparations debate is that it's uh, too abstract, like it's not specific enough. Um, people are always demanding, you know, how exactly do you plan to implement this? So can you talk about how the agenda kind of fleshes that out in terms of how it advances specific policy remedies and like land ownership and health care? And how does that expand our ongoing debate on reparations? Yeah, I think that just the word reparations is enough to shut conversations down or just to deem them as impractical because uh, I, I think the common notion that folks have when they hear reparations is like this lump sum check that is cut to a group of people, and that's, that's really not how we're looking at this. 
that we're not just looking at it as, you know, oh, all all descendants of, of slaves should get something. It's really, you know, when when you look definitionally at, at what reparations are, it's, it's making amends for harm that's been done. So, you know, we're looking beyond the chattel slavery of over 400 years ago. We're looking at um, Jim Crow. We're looking at predatory lending practices. We're looking at redlining. We're looking at mass incarceration and the war on drugs. And so reparations, what we've really tried to do in the in this agenda is uh, posit the fact that reparations can take many different forms. Reparations can come in the form of a tax credit. It can come in the form of a national scholarship that is funded by colleges and universities that benefited directly from slave labor um, or, or a cancellation of, of student loans that, that um that young black people are disproportionately impacted by. You know, it, it, we give a, a case example of uh, of the only city in this country that's ever passed uh, an, an ordinance for reparations for a group of people in Chicago that, that campaign literally just won last year, reparations for survivors that were tortured by John Burge uh, and his crew several years ago. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, a, a, a check that was cut survivors. I mean, these, these people are getting counseling services. The torture scandal is being taught in Chicago public schools. The, the, the descendants of survivors will be able to get free college education. I mean, there's so many different ways that reparations can be played out. Reparations could look like um, pardoning or expungement of those who have been swept up by the war on drugs. You know, I think the, the entire agenda to build black futures, frankly, could be put in a reparations framework. So it's, it's really about just pushing back against this notion of, you know, like free check for all and really looking at the harm that's been done and, and what can be done to rectify that. There's, there's currently a bill right now that's, that's been just lingering in Congress for the past going on three years that would launch a commission to, to study the need for reparations in this country. Um, and so, you know, just, just to even have that study be conducted, I think would be uh, a huge step forward because I, I think if, if, if any study is to be conducted on on what harms have been uh, imposed against black people in this country over the past uh, several hundred years, I, you know, it, it's impossible for it to come back that, uh, that reparations are not in order. So, you know, um, I, I think our push for, for reparations definitely has to start on, uh, raising a, awareness and education around what it is and what it could look like, and also just on the other hand, pushing uh, on on the policy level, you know, for this commission to, to study reparations to happen, and for um, you know whether it be on the city level, the state, or the and or federal level uh, to look at how how reparations could be um, uh, disseminated. Uh, at, at whatever level, because it's definitely possible. We've seen that in Chicago. Um, and so so we're really looking forward to what that looks like or what that can look like uh, in the near future. Yeah. And conversely, I mean, I, th- I actually think HR for earlier incarnations of HR 40 uh, surfaced well over a decade ago. And uh, just, just the fact that people seem so reluctant slash afraid to even debate the issue, I think really speaks to kind of uh, enforced silence in mm-hmm. our mainstream politics around just the idea of uh, racial uh, recompense. And 
as a follow-up, I noted that uh, you are highlighting the hashtag Black Work Matters and uh, mm-hmm. made me think about some of the uh, Black Friday protests in which you had um, Walmart strikers, um, you know, sort of marching alongside Black Lives Matters protesters um, last year. And there's this really interesting synergy. And yet, in the presidential debate that we see now, it's uh, interesting and yet totally not surprising that you actually see race and class once again sort of being pitted against each other as these two mm-hmm. <laughs> mutually exclusive um, arenas of, of thought. And I was just wondering how a concept like Black Work Matters, how you hope to sort of change that discourse and make it so that it's not like people feel as if they're choosing between one or the other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think using the hashtag Black Work Matters, that, so that actually first emerged earlier in uh, in 2015 when BYP 100 first kind of joined the, the, the National Fight for 15 campaign because we, we wanted to come into to this campaign really linking uh, economic justice with, with racial justice. And the Fight for 15 camp- campaign has been really great at, at uplifting, you know, the, that hashtag and what it means. Um, and so it's definitely not an attempt to, again, put uh, black people in the labor market over uh, any other race or ethnicity, but just saying that, you know, it, the numbers don't lie. The, the disproportionality of low-wage workers in this country, particularly in, in service sectors and in fast food, is definitely, you know, tipped towards, uh, towards black folks. And so... Yeah, I think that definitely a goal of, of ours with the Black Work Matters hashtag is to is to make sure that that's not forgotten and to um, really add, just add nuance to this colorblind class conversation that's been happening because we just know that, that it, it's simply just not accurate <laughs> to separate uh, race from class when it comes to economic justice and, and wages and underemployment in America. Finally, to, to sort of wrap this up, what are the next steps for this agenda? Are there organizing campaigns that our listeners can support if they're interested? Um, how can people find and connect to your work? Two things. So there's definitely campaigns that have already been launched and campaigns that are in development on the ground that pushes forward the agenda to build black futures. This document is, is supposed to be a framework for activists and organizers across the country to use as uh, a lobbying tool, so to speak, or a, a guideline to, to build their own campaign wherever they live that is specific to uh, to their conditions locally. Because we recognize that, you know, uh, a policy recommendation in, in Chicago is, is, wouldn't necessarily work for Columbia, South Carolina. So definitely... Um, BYP 100 chapters uh, across the country have, have launched in, and are developing on-the-ground campaigns, and we encourage um, other folks within and outside of um, organizations to do so. If you log on to www.agendatobuildblackfutures.org, sign up for our mailing list, you can definitely stay in tune with, uh, with new developments on this agenda and how it's being used and successes from it, and just Stay tuned to our, our website where we will have uh, blog posts and other campaign updates to get plugged into. And, and this, this document will definitely be used um, by us in our um, civic engagement efforts leading up to the 2016 presidential election to, uh, to try to push the conversation forward in the things that we're discussing in this agenda.
And that was Janae Bonsu, National Public Policy Chair of BYP 100. And we'll have links to the full agenda and more background on BYP 100 on the Belabored site. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it is time for ARG when we bring you things that we wish we had written but didn't. My ARG pick for this week was called The Unknown Poorly Paid Labor Force Powering Academic Research. You might think, what other labor force is there? But Louise Mitsakis takes an interesting perspective at the Vice's motherboard by looking into the role of crowdsourced data gathering in a new breed of academic research that banks heavily on virtual workers to gather big data. It seems like social media penetrates every aspect of society these days, from our dating lives to our office chatter to our political system. And in every instance, it's usually met with eye rolls and grumbles about how it's dumbing down the public discourse. Surely the rarefied world of academia is immune to this. Surely the ivory tower of scholarship would be well insulated from the casualization of cheapening of knowledge, correct? Think again, this time with the help of a small army of on-demand data gatherers contracted to you through the digital ether via a sophisticated new app-based academic industry. Vice's motherboard reports on the role of Mechanical Turk and its workers, known as Turkers, in social science research. It turns out researchers are increasingly leaning on exploited crowdsourced labor supplied by Mechanical Turk and other services that whip up a workforce of data monkeys who fan out across the internets and conduct online surveys and research. Academics are finding this to be a quick and dirty way to amass huge pools of data at a faster rate, which goes well with the high-pressure world of publisher parish that many academics compete in. This kind of mass data mining opens up huge opportunities to gather big data really fast and to do huge analyses of a rather large pool of people. But the little people who supply these surveys, they come pretty cheap and they come along with some potentially huge ethical costs. According to Vice, MTurk appeals to academics across many disciplines, from the STEM fields to philosophy, allows them to gather data quickly, easily, and most importantly, cheaply. Researchers are also able to source data from a wider swath of participants than might be available on the campuses of their respective universities, including people who are older and from different geographical regions. Sounds great. Unfortunately, this raises all sorts of ethical issues, as well as basic accuracy problems. How do you ensure a representative sample, for instance? How do you ensure that your underpaid anonymous Turker is going to be responsible about carefully recording responses? What happens if they decide to cut corners by fudging numbers? Who's responsible and what happens if a line is crossed that violates someone's rights? As Moshe Marvit and others have pointed out in their commentaries on crowd work, MTurk is basically low-paid piecework rebranded as digital innovation. Rates run as low as 10 cents a minute for survey work. Second, even when huge important data nuggets are being mined, surveyors are often pressured to sacrifice quality for quantity. Uh, For instance, Vice reports major sampling liabilities, uh, which I guess kind of reflects the inevitable echo chamber that we all dwell in on social media. 
Uh, it reports many of the tasks on the site are completed by a very small set of workers who frequently chat with one another about the surveys they are completing in various online forums. It's possible that using such a small sample of people might skew research results across many different fields. In addition, MTurk is in some cute DIY startup. It's a global empire run by none other than Amazon, which massively exploits data workers as well as workers of all types, from the office to the warehouse. And it exploits data customers as well, who are basically in a captive market, through Amazon's proprietary, opaque, and unaccountable closed market in a virtually unregulated sphere of internet commerce. Amazon, Vice reports, uh, reportedly compares users to their IRS documents, and they have to wait out a probationary period. Amazon does not take responsibility for things like ensuring workers make an hourly minimum wage or handling their tax withholding and contributions. MTurk functions similarly to a micro-sized temporary work agency. Individuals compete to snag extremely short gigs that are only on the site for seconds before they're claimed. If far-ranging and important and ambitious academic research that ordinarily would take years is being distilled into basically a auction for piecework, what does that do to the quality of the research? Um, there's also a weird esoteric hierarchy that emerges among the uh, Turk labor force. Some master Turkers pull in hundreds of dollars an hour, while lesser Turkers do data grunt work for a fraction of that, and they end up struggling to get by. In June of last year, Vice reports, Amazon doubled its base commission rate from 10 to 20 percent. But because that percentage is based off and added on top of Turkers' wages, Turkers say the new structure has caused request makers to pay lower wages for the same work to save money. And obviously, it's the worker at the end of the line who gets stuck with the cost in terms of lost income. So this has always happened in academia, of course, and it's not really like a sample of, uh, you know, people on campus is that much more representative than a poll of people online. But the difference is that here the stakes are higher, not just because the samples are larger, but because so many more people are engaged in this so-called micro work, because there's so little transparency and such huge asymmetry of knowledge and control. The lone doctoral candidate can now become the de facto employer of dozens of people, sight unseen, anywhere in the world, leaving aside the ethics of letting strangers conduct sensitive surveys about lifestyles or behavior. What are the ethics of academics using these workers under Amazon's supervision, supposedly, to act as their surrogates in highly sensitive research? Mitsakis concludes, as researchers continue to question the ethics around MTurk, its workers will keep to completing many of these strange and monotonous tasks that keep academia and the internet at large churning around. There were, of course, ethical problems involved in traditional social science research before MTurk ever came along. In many ways, you could say that the openness and horizontal structure of the internet allows for public scrutiny and free criticism and free thought in a way that can ultimately improve the quality and integrity of academic practices and research. But MTurk is where labor rights clash with education, and it's another way for academic labor to be degraded, de-skilled, and ultimately delegitimized unless we start pulling back and reevaluating where the value proposition of the digital revolution lies in academia. 
we have an entire industry based off of exploited, uh, for instance, graduate school worker labor, the increasing use of adjuncts, the increasing use of online substitutes for actual teaching and learning. So is this another way to exploit knowledge as commodity, or is it a way for us to bring new value to the craft of intellectual exploration? For 10 cents a minute, it's tough to create that new age of wisdom. Premalyn Addison has been our guest on this podcast before and has joined us for a panel on organizing and gender at the Left Forum and generally is a person whose work I stop to read whenever I get a chance. So when I saw that in the new issue of Jacobin there is a piece of hers on welfare reform, no less, I knew it was going to be argworthy and she did not disappoint. The piece is called How a Democrat Killed Welfare. And, well, the whole premise of the so-called welfare-to-work programs is that the work that women do in the home isn't real work and therefore is not deserving of financial support. Those women are lazy and need to get jobs, the argument goes, an argument that has been backed for many decades now by Democrats as well as Republicans, and in fact specifically pushed by two prominent candidates for president on both sides of the aisle, Hillary Clinton, whose husband Bill signed the infamous welfare reform bill, and Republican John Kasich, who was in Congress at the time. But what Nadison does in this piece is not just rehash the way thinly veiled racist arguments that were too enthusiastically adopted by too many people created a horribly punitive policy. She also connects welfare reform to the tough-on-crime rhetoric of the time and the laws that built the mass incarceration crisis we have today, which were, of course, also being pushed by many people in both parties. She writes, quote, States were pressured to reduce welfare roles, now the singular quantitative measure of success for the program, and used multiple strategies to deter the needy for applying for aid. They implemented complicated and demeaning application procedures and relied on fingerprinting and drug testing to weed out the, quote, criminal element, even though there was little evidence of widespread criminal activity among recipients. The net result was that all recipients and applicants were assumed to be potential criminals. Surveillance of low-income women punished black women in disproportionate numbers, resulting in more black children in foster care and more black women in prison. Today, welfare and law enforcement work together to closely monitor the parenting of poor mothers. This punitive approach, she notes, was a result of the way that race and poverty had become intertwined in the national debate, even though, of course, plenty of white people have always been poor. Fear of crime and the hype of the, quote, culture of poverty led to a system that had to discipline mostly perceived as black mothers, mostly by pushing them into dead-end low-wage jobs, like the ones where we're seeing all sorts of organizing these days, not coincidentally, perhaps. This campaign season, we're seeing the reversal of many of these arguments, as Bill Clinton in particular has walked back the support that he once gave to the mass incarceration system. But there has been no public apology for welfare reform, even though it was built on the same premises and did plenty of damage itself. That is all for episode 97 of Belabored. As always, we will put links to everything you've heard on today's show up at the Descent website. You can always reach us at belabored at descentmagazine.org and tweet at us at hashtag belabored. If you are a public worker or a potential Supreme Court nominee, a mechanical turker or a welfare rights organizer, if you have ideas on how to support BYP 100's agenda to build black futures or anything else. Thank you for listening and we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>